want us to just hear a few passages of Scripture in the Old Testament before we begin. First off in Jeremiah 32.17, the Scripture says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Daniel says all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? First Chronicles says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. These are just samples of some of the the forming principles that the Jewish people understood uh, who they understood their God to be. They expected him to be the almighty. They knew him as the all powerful. Especially as they were in their times of oppression and captivity and things, these ideas and these concepts were hugely important to the Jewish people. And as we discovered last week, and in the midst of all that heaviness, in the midst of that um, uh, that kind of downtrodden expectation or lack of expectation about a rescue, when things seemed their bleakest in terms of the political environment and just all that was going on around them, that's when the prophet Isaiah speaks these words of hope that ring into existence where he says, for a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. They understood that their coming king would be all that they needed that the son that would be given to them would fulfill these titles and rescue his people from bondage. They they understood that, I guess, maybe even more than just on the surface, but they understood the general concept that he would come as a conquering king. Their their, their uh, prophets, their scriptures, their all of their things that they studied leading up to told them that their God was strong, that he was powerful, that he was mighty. And so that part wasn't a shocker to them at all. In fact, last week when we were looking at the, the, the title that was given, Wonderful Counselor, and we said that this is one of the, if you, if you picture the throne that the coming king would sit on, it was one of the legs of the throne or a pillar that this title was given to him, Wonderful Counselor. And we discussed how this is something that is beyond just the idea of someone who's talented, who has good advice, who seems to know the landscape of things and, and can insert truth just at the right time or something. That wonderful was something that was beyond human ability. It was beyond the comprehension of mere mortals to understand how is this uh, coming about? How, how is this person able to do what they're doing? And we said that Jesus, everything he did while he walked this earth, it wasn't just better than we could do it. It wasn't just more talent. It wasn't just more experience. It wasn't a cleaner filter between him and his father. It was because he was God and he was going to do it as God would do it. And we would always fall short of doing those things as God does it. 
And so wonderful gave us that that sense of this awareness that there was something supernatural going on here and that that counsel wasn't just what you and I would consider in sort of our one on one environments or more of our therapeutic environments, though there is elements of all that God teaches in his truth that guide us in everyday principles of life. But that the concept of wonderful counselor was more related to what we see um, going on around uh, as world leaders have teams of advisors and people that sit around the table and interject. This is what I think we should do. Or if you were wise, you would do this. And they lay out all sorts of scenarios and options based on their expertise, based on their 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 experience or, or just based on whatever concoction they can pull out of the air, something to sound like they belong at the table, however those things work. And the point was is that Isaiah was saying that this coming king would need no advisors. There's no spots open at his table. No need to send in your resume. He's not looking for any advice. And so our wonderful counselor, who is one who is truth, who doesn't need any guidance, he's not waiting to come up with a better idea. He is the idea. He is the solution. He is the answer. Because he is God. And also, as we move into this second title, because these things are all related. And it's interesting to take a step back and see how they're related. But as you look at another leg on the throne, or if you if you picture another pillar in this, is that that he would be called mighty God. And again, so we understand mighty is, okay, strong, powerful. We expect that. We expect to see muscle. We expect to see strength, maybe uh, over... Uh, um, just an overabundance of resources or something like that. That's what we expect. But even even uh, our, our word mighty goes beyond that and starts to put us in an arena that involves competition, that involves victory over an enemy. In other words, this this uh, this word could be translated champion or what we would picture hero. And I have this image in my mind every time I think of that hero. It's that person who's standing over his 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 uh, his conquered enemy and he's got his sword in the ground or his stake in the ground or something. You know, I'm probably a little more graphic than I probably should be on a Sunday morning. But I'm thinking about that kind of very victorious stance that there's no doubt in anybody's mind that this person won the victory. So when we think of mighty, we think of of someone who's taken action, who's gone out and fought and has won. Now, if we're being honest, because we have a tendency sometimes to look in the rearview mirror of the Old Testament scripture and say, how did they miss this? Now that we know how Jesus arrived and we know what he did while he was on this earth, how did the how did God's people miss that this is who he's going to be? But if we just stop and kind of relate to the humanity of 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 um, what they were expecting after all of the scripture, we just went through just a small sample of the scriptures that says, basically, look for him to come in strength, look for him to come in might, look for him to come in power. You and I would be somewhat disappointed, too, I would think, or we would miss the announcement of of one being born in a barn because this is nowhere near the description that we had envisioned for ourselves uh, receiving this coming conquering king who's got his foot on his enemy and his flag staked in the ground and, and, and ready to claim territory and turf. And so we would be probably no different apart from the grace of God in how we were expecting this coming king to arrive. But back to these two uh, pillars, just for a second, back to these two legs of the throne Think about how these two things relate, because as we said, there's lots of titles that have been given to God. Pastor Bill went through um, the meanings of the four that are chosen here and stuff. And there's others that, you know, if we're if we're taking 
the Holy Spirit authoring the scriptures out of this. But there's others that could have been chosen to uh, to to get us to think about who is this king that's coming. But these four were chosen specifically and on purpose. And so we have our wonderful counselor. We have mighty God and and uh, everlasting father and prince of peace. And the first two, you think about the relationship of if you have just good counsel by itself. You have good counsel by itself. You have someone maybe who has brilliant ideas or someone who has a strategy, someone who has all the answers, but there's no authority. There's no power. There's no resources to march forward with this with this counsel. Instead, they just have, you know, they're alone by themselves in their room with their ideas. And they say things like, well, they wouldn't listen to me anyway, so I can solve all these problems, but I'm not going to share them with anybody. And so that's what good counsel looks like in isolation without Power. If you have great power in isolation, you have all of this um, strength and enthusiasm and 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 adrenaline and and resources and ammunition and everything with no good counsel, which means you're just conquering for the sake of conquering, because that's what you feel like doing, because you're power hungry. So without good counsel, great power becomes abusive. So the pillars are starting to explain to us that in Christ we have the merger of these two things. We will eventually have the merger of these four, but for now we have good counsel with the ability to follow it up, with the ability to take action on that good strategy. And that is where we start coming into this idea of what do the scriptures spell out uh, with how the coming king would arrive. What is a mighty God going to do? You might remember if you were here last week that uh, when we were looking at Wonderful Counselor, we needed a plan. We needed somebody to spell out what the administration would actually do. We talked about in our political climate today, uh, it's one thing for a candidate to spend a, a majority of their time talking in big picture things and they say sort of non-specifics and, and they're things that they know will sound good on a news clip or something, but eventually it's, it behooves them to actually follow up all of that rhetoric with a plan. This is what I'm going to do. When I said I was going to accomplish this, this is the three, four, five-step plan on how I'm going to do it. And so Isaiah 11, in a sense, works like that for the wonderful counselor and the mighty God. If we come to just the end of of uh, of these five verses that are given to us here at the beginning of, of Isaiah 11, picking up in the middle of verse 4. It says, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he'll slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness, the uh, the belt about his waist. Because this is a council, this is a strategy that is able to take action with authority. This is an administration who's going to be aggressive. This is an administration who's going to be on the offensive you know, there's a lot of great thinkers out there. There's a lot of um, uh, uh, strong powers. There's a lot of this that who, who sit back and just wait for other things to unfold and they don't take action. Jesus is the coming king who will go on the offensive and take the fight to his enemy. Isaiah 42 tells us the Lord will go forth like a warrior. He'll arouse his zeal like a man of war. He'll utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. Now, think about any scene that you've witnessed, 
You've seen on, on uh, they've recreated in movies or something like that where this conquering king goes out aggressively. He does battle. He frees his people from the oppression of their enemy. And you just know that there's this building uh, uh, this concophity of, of, of just excitement and jubilation. And they're, they're yelling and screaming and they're chanting as their hero takes his position, takes his place. And there's all of these emotions at once. There's this, this uh, overwhelming sense of victory. There's an overwhelming sense of relief, like the, the people that we are so afraid of, I can't believe they've been wiped out. And coming to terms with we don't have to look over our shoulder anymore, and all of this is felt in a moment, and it's just this deafening uh, sound of cheers and just freaking out and everything that goes on. And this is what the, the, the people of God were hoping to be able to enter into. They were hoping to be able to participate. And when he comes, he'll come of noble stock. He'll come in an unmistakable manner and everyone's knees will start to shake and they'll quake in their boots and he'll be able to march to the top of the hill and he'll throw that flag in and we'll all just cheer and praise and lose our minds out of relief and jubilation. And it's no wonder why they had such a difficult time, by and large, with the packaging of this promised hero, the one who would come with all this muscle and strength and shiniest armor and all these things that that their mind filled in the gaps that God didn't say. You think about how important that is. God said exactly what he meant to say. He told them truth, but he didn't fill in every single detail except for certain things that we see in passages like Isaiah 9, and we see things about a son being given and everything, and everyone's imagination, what they wanted to receive, filled in all the rest. So they had a problem with the packaging of this promised hero. If you and I were told that we've been given a gift and it's been wrapped in this box over here, and trust me, this gift is going to answer all your problems, it's going to solve all of your fears, it's going to come through for you in a pinch when you need it most, but the time isn't right for you to receive the gift, so we're just going to leave it wrapped and under the tree, and I'll let you know when. And then all of a sudden you wait a day or two and you think, well, if it's this good, it's got to be coming right around the corner. You wait and you wait and wait, and the, the gift giver keeps saying it's not time yet. Days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months. Months turn into years, years turn into decades, and eventually centuries and everything. And all the while, you're not able to open this gift. When you're finally able to open it... Now, if you've anticipated anything for a length of time, are you typically... Don't say this out loud, because some of you might have might have gotten one of these gifts this year or last year or something like that. Are you typically, after all the waiting and anticipation, are you generally pleased with the outcome or you was a little bit let down. If you knew what was coming, or you at least had a good idea what was coming, what does your typical human reaction look like? Is it typically pleasantly surprised, or is it pleasant, or is it typically let down? Now, it's not. I'm, I'm speaking in generalities here, but for the most part, we have a tendency to be underwhelmed when we've waited long enough for something. We have a tendency to go. Boy, I waited all this time. Think if you've ever said this. I've waited all this time for this. It happens. I'm not going to get specific. Just saying that that does happen in life. We have so much criticism for God's people who missed all of the signs. When in fact, they are human just like you and I are. So what killed the Jews' hopes was their perspective. 
You imagine a conquering king. You expect sweeping victories. You expect speeches with soaring rhetoric. You expect your hero moment. You envision a leader who captures hearts and minds by the millions, not some humble, seemingly nobody who's going to go one at a time and bring one person into the kingdom as he reaches them and all that kind of stuff. You count the days until your people are given the proper dignity of a homeland and a government of their own, not some scattered bunch of rebels who are constantly on the run from the sword and the spear. This is why Jesus had to come out in full force. This is why Jesus performed the miracles he did. This is why the New Testament writers and even Jesus himself gave us an indication that he was the one promised because it wasn't going to be obvious. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, hey, guys, look, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I've been spending these last three and a half years on this earth showing you that I have this authority and that others that reject me are missing it. Colossians backs it up and says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things are created, both in the heavens and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, anything you can imagine and the things you can't even imagine, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. The expectation of the war that would be waged was just flipped right upside down on its head. Jesus came, he came in that same victorious stance, he came to stick his flag in the ground and he came to wage war, it's just they missed it because he waged war with the mostly unseen world. He was led through the areas of temptation from Satan himself and he made these attempts to to tell the son of man to just give it all up, you don't have to wait till the end, you don't have to see this mission through, I'll give you all of these things that that I have power to control here on the earth, so he thinks and all that stuff and Jesus used the, the weaponry of the word of God to withstand those temptations. He went to those that were uh, uh, engulfed in uh, demonic spirits and he cast them out into the swine and they went running off uh, off the cliff. And he went over to those that were dead and, the, and he walked in the midst of the morning and he raised, he raised people from the dead. He reached down to those that were uh, suffering under the guilt and the shame of their sin and he forgives them right in front of all of the, the most um, religious who knew that nobody could forgive sins but God and if you string all of these events together and you kind of condense them like we like to do with our sports we like to see our highlight reels and we like to put cool music behind it and and it what took a three out what what takes a three-hour game and sort of condenses it to all of the activity and all of a sudden you realize wow I missed something really amazing I can't believe all that action happened, all that drama happened, everything. If you take all of the deeds that Jesus did, all of the action that he that he did, you and you compress it, put it to your cool music, whatever you want to do, you start to see that what he was doing was waging war. That he came as the mighty God that was promised to us from the prophecy of Isaiah. We forget this because for us, so much time has gone by. We read it like a history book. We don't see it as something that's still active today. We don't see it as something that's alive. And so when we're so far removed these thousands of years later, we miss the, the urgency of it. We miss the aggression of the war that Jesus was waging. The same thing happens to us when we um, uh, try to follow up on our own conflicts as a country. You know, we... Ever since um, I remember being in high school and the uh, the uh, the Gulf War was happening, 
And I remember being able to to make the little joke after like basketball practice. I'm going to go watch the war on TV. You know, you get to go home and we had 24-7 cable news that was starting to happen. And we had people that were following the, the scans and you could see the bombs being dropped. And they'd tell us who they just took out and what was all happening. And from the comfort of my living room and sitting on a couch, I got to say that I saw what was going on in the war. And then we find out how people come back from the Gulf. We found out what they've seen, what they've experienced. And then I start to think, I don't think I saw anything. I don't think I experienced any of the conflict. I saw what was going on from a distance, but I was so far removed from the actual conflict, the pressure of it and everything that they experienced. And so we do the same thing with the experience, with with the uh, with the efforts of Jesus, with the war that he waged. We can read it in print and we can hear about it from the pulpit. But if we were to take a second and think about what did, you know, if I'm minimizing what Jesus did and I'm minimizing the strength and the might that it took for him to do it, the very moment you and I would have entered into the conflict that he was in and felt even way before the road to Calvary's cross and felt the conflict that he was under and felt the pressure that he was under to just fail and move on. To literally have the weight of the world on your shoulders. And to not be mind blown or staggered with the fact that he never made a mistake. He never missed his step. He never lost a a command from his from his uh, from his father. He never approached any of this in error. He never sinned. When you're watching the infrared and you see the bombs dropping from TV, you go, "Okay, yeah, Jesus never sinned. That's pretty cool. He did that for us, and because of that, we get to celebrate the elements of the Lord's table, and we appreciate our salvation and things. But if we were ever engaged in the conflict, if we were ever there on the ground, we would understand, this is what he went through for me, and he never blew it. Even our best soldiers have their moments. Our highest trained, uh, uh, most professional warriors still experience a misfire or they they didn't aim correctly or they missed a command from their officer or their their firearm uh, uh, jams or something like that. Things go wrong in the heat of battle, but it never did for Jesus. And we need to have our minds blown by that thought and understand we could say, well, yeah, he was God. You know, he had a, a clearer line to the father and everything. But but yeah, he was God, but he was all man. Jesus relied on the power of the Holy Spirit in his humanity and yet was still the conquering king. Even in his humanity, never missed a step. The typical application that we would have to these kinds of passages of Scripture, the typical place that we will go in our thinking is as we talk about the might and the strength and the power and the majesty of God, we love to follow it up with. So therefore, God can be big in your life, too. Now, if we go back to the misunderstanding of the Jewish people and how they're expecting Jesus to come, is that really a false application? If, if Jesus is, is told to us in the scriptures as being the one who will show up as the conquering hero and, and as the victorious warrior, is it wrong for us to say that God's going to be big in our lives if we put our faith and trust in him? It's not. Scriptures have led us to that conclusion. If it's anybody's, pardon my human term here, if it's anybody's fault, 
it would be the scriptures for leading us to the conclusion that when Jesus moves in, he moves in with power and force and strength and weaponry and resources and all that stuff. So it's appropriate for us to anticipate that as Jesus moves in to our lives, as we surrender our lives to him. But there's a second aspect of this that doesn't get as, uh, nearly the same amount of applause. It doesn't get the, the, the amount of traction, especially in our American culture. And I want to try to spell it out by using a portion of a C.S. Lewis book uh, in his Chronicles of Narnia series called The Silver Chair. And in this book, a girl named Jill walks into an opening in the forest. She's very thirsty and not far away she sees a stream of cool, clear water. But instead of rushing forward to grab a drink, she hesitates. There's something that uh, causes her to stop in her tracks in fear. Because lying there on the ground next to the stream is this huge lion who is Aslan, who is the Christ figure. And as she ponders what to do, he speaks to her. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. Well, may I, um, could I, uh, well, would you, would you mind just going away while I do it? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her own convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Well, will you, will you promise not to, you know, do anything to me if I do come? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you'll die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I I suppose I, I, I have to go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. You see, Jill is approaching the lion with the same reverence and same fear that the mighty God commands. In our worship, we love to celebrate and we love to express our jubilation when our hero, the king, mounts up on the, on the, on the stack of, of the dead beneath his feet and stake his claim and to, to stand there and have that hero pose and we love to celebrate that and worship that. And so much of our church experience, we just love to clap for that. We love to lift that up. That's the aspect of the coming king that we love to acknowledge in our lives. But at the same time, anybody who's capable of comp uh, accomplishing such desolation, anybody who's capable of, of accomplishing such carnage and, and, and just uh, overwhelming victory is also someone not to be trifled with. Someone that you and I shouldn't dare push around. The reality is we can't. But so often in our approach to the things of God, to the principles of Scripture, to the commands given to us, we so often act like we have this choice that goes on, like we have this I'll get around to it when I want to kind of thing. 
If we understood who we are applauding for his victory, we would also be just as intimidated when he turns to look back at his people. Did he accomplish the victory for you and for me? Yes, he did. Did he accomplish it out of his great love and compassion for those that he would save unto himself? Absolutely. But is he capable of such destruction and carnage and everything because he is a mighty warrior? Yes, he is. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns in heaven above, right as the song says. So this Christmas season, as we are getting around the elements of the Lord's table, as we're lighting the Advent candle, as we're singing our carols, as we're let us remember that though he was packaged in this tiny little uh, baby skin and everything that we love to approach, everything that we love to to swaddle as the scripture said and take care of and everything is also this this valiant, fearless warrior who is able to conquer the sin in our lives, who is able to destroy and has destroyed the greatest enemy you and I will ever have, but at the same time has laid down his uh, command for his soldiers and we need to follow him and say, yes, sir, lead us into battle. I'm going to ask you to stand if you would and let's close our time in prayer. Lord God, we are a mixed up people in our minds and in our emotions so often, Lord. You have formed us together in ways we can't comprehend. And so emotion is such a huge part of our fabric. Logic is as well. And Lord, you are constantly doing your work to redeem all of those pieces. So Lord, as we struggle with these concepts, may we be humbled by the fact that we would have missed the signs too if it weren't for your grace. We would have uh, not understood uh, the Father's plan if it wasn't for the fact that we can read about it in hindsight and trust in it from then. Lord, you have always, always required faith for, for those to come to you. And so, Lord, you've always had faithful coming to you. But, Lord, help us to be humbled as we understand that you are a great warrior. Lord, you're not one to be managed. You're not one to be approached casually, but cautiously, even as we trust your dying love for us and your obedience to your Father. Thank you for this great day of celebration and reverence. Thank you for this great day of memorial as we think about all that you've done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. Lord, may you give each person in this room an extra measure of of boldness as they go out into a lost and dying world, knowing that who we represent is the conquering king and you will never be defeated. Thank you, Lord, for using us in the battle. In Jesus' name, amen.